Hi everybody, this is John Farian with Live Large Universe, and I'm here with Caleb and the Avalanche Hour podcast. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and welcome to December. As of recording this on November 28th, at least most mountain locales within the contiguous U.S. are a bit lackluster in terms of snowpack, um, with perhaps some sketchy structure out there just waiting for a load. There's a lot of hidden obstacles out there in a thin snowpack, and uh, already a couple close calls, so take your easy out there. Of course, if you're up in Alaska, you're dealing with a little bit more snow, and maybe challenging rain snow line but that's nothing new for those folks up there um, hope everybody continues to stay safe out there i wanted to highlight a couple important community events that are happening soon tomorrow saturday december 2nd is the eastern snow and avalanche workshop up in freiburg maine so if you're in the area head over to freiburg academy for the eastern snow and avalanche workshop saturday december 2nd And another great event that is not to be missed, put on in conjunction with the American Avalanche Association and ISSW 2023, is the Forecasting Stress and Resilience Panel, Operational Issues and Innovations. Um, So for those that don't know, this much-anticipated panel had to be adapted during ISSW because of a squirrel that chewed through a substation Um, which took out all the power of Ben for several hours. So um, way to bounce back and make sure that this is available to perhaps even a greater audience now. Um, You're not going to want to miss out on this great panel. December 6th, that's a Wednesday, 6.30 Mountain Time. And there's a Zoom link that you can access. You can find more information at AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org. Additional support for this episode is provided by Propagation Labs. Propagation Labs is a small company from Salt Lake City, Utah, that makes tools for snow and avalanche professionals to help streamline the collection, recording, and analyzing of snowpack observations. The Snowscope Probe is a digital penetrometer that can rapidly and accurately measure snowpack structure, then sends the data to your phone in seconds. Use of the snowscope keeps observations standardized and objective, removing bias from hand hardness profiles. Reduce your uncertainty around the spatial variability of the snowpack through efficient sampling. Using the snowscope will give you a hardness profile in less than 10 seconds, allowing you to sample snowpack structure across various aspects and elevation bands, giving you a better understanding of the big picture. The Snowscope has been tested in 24 countries by over 90 snow professionals with over 7,000 snow profiles recorded. I used the Snowscope last year while ski guiding and forecasting. I used it often in conjunction with a manual snow pit. When comparing its results to my hand hardness profiles, 
I was impressed by the accuracy of the snowscope. Throughout the progression of the day, the snowscope helped me to save time through progressive sampling as I changed elevation bands and aspects, all while keeping an eye on the depth and distribution of a layer of concern. To find out more or to order a snowscope, check out propagationlabs.com or download the free snowscope app to check out the data and see the manual pit recording features. It's like a digital notebook. If you're intrigued, don't miss the full-length episode featuring Joe and Garrett of Propagation Labs. It's episode 710. As you're waiting for the snow to stack up a little bit in your location, why not do some avalanche partner rescue practice? This very perishable skill needs practice, and so as you're out there practicing, making it fun with your friends, uh, snap a picture and tag the Avalanche Hour podcast and Gordini USA, and you'll be entered to win a little prize package from Gordini with some goggles and some socks and a pair of gloves of your choice. So snap a picture, tag Gordini and the Avalanche Hour podcast, and give both of us a follow. You'll be entered to win. We'll pull that drawing on January 15th. All right, we've got a great interview queued up for you today with John Farian. You're going to hear more about John here in the coming hour. Um, but he is doing a lot in the motorized backcountry community to spread the word of avalanche awareness. Um, he does some of this through his podcast, Live Large Universe, um, as well as his partnership with many entities, including NWAC and ARI and the Avalanche Alliance. And now the Avalanche Alliance is, is fundraising a ton of money for avalanche education and awareness and avalanche forecast centers that benefit all users. They have a great sweepstakes that's going on right now, and you can be entered to win a brand new Polaris snowmobile or Marlon sled deck, amongst other amazing prizes. You'll hear more about it. But the sweepstakes ends on December 10th. So you got 10 more days to purchase some tickets. And if you use the promo code LIVELARGE in the checkout, you'll receive 30% more tickets from now until the end of the sweepstakes on December 10th. And then the winner will be announced uh, by John on December 18th. And you can find that on the Snow West Facebook page. So don't delay. Buy your tickets today. All of the money raised goes right back to the community. And um, it's a great effort from the Avalanche Alliance. And and you're going to hear more about it here within the hour. But just wanted to make that plug. Go buy some tickets right now. Let's, uh, Let's support the Avalanche Alliance and motorized avalanche education. And without further ado, here we go, dropping in with John Farian. All right, welcome to the show, John. Thanks for making the time today. For our listeners, John Farian is a force to be reckoned with within the avalanche community as a whole, and and more specifically, the motorized avalanche community. He lives in Seattle, Washington area, and uh, he's been a snowmobiler his whole life. Um, he's the president of the Cascade Drift Skippers Snowmobile Club. He's on the board of directors for the Northwest Avalanche Center and founder of Live Large University Scholarship Program at Aerie. Um, he'll talk a lot more about the Live Large Universe um, powerhouse that, that, that he is. Um, he's also a member of the Avalanche Alliance, 
who runs the Avalanche Alliance Sweepstakes, which you're going to hear more about in, in this hour. Um, and he's on the Motorized Advisory Board for Airy. Um, John, fill, fill in some blanks for us. What did, what did I miss there? Well, as you uh, described, the only thing you missed was my day job. So uh, those, those everything you've described are all volunteer, uh, you know, obligations that I've uh, put myself into, and uh, I keep myself pretty busy. Sometimes uh, I get questions from people like, "How do you find time for all of this? What do you do?" And all I can say is I'm I'm kind of like a little little motor that doesn't know how to shut off uh, from from dawn to dusk and. Whether I'm working on my Microsoft stuff or if I'm working on Avalanche stuff in the evenings or on the weekends, um, you know, doing my podcast on Sunday nights is my normal time. Um, I, I tend to stay pretty, pretty active and pretty busy. But uh, you know, they, they've always told me that if you want something done, ask somebody who's busy to do it. They'll figure out how to work it into the schedule. So no doubt. Well, tell us a little bit more about your history and kind of like your experience uh, riding snowmobiles. Uh, when did you start, and and how have you progressed, and and when did you become aware of the need for avalanche education in in your riding yeah sounds good yeah i'll give you a little little additional history background so um you know john farian obviously married to my wife edith farian for 27 years now got two adult sons that are 21 22 years old uh they're both at university of washington washington here in seattle area and uh, we all collectively were born and raised in minnesota and we made the transition out to seattle in 2012 um, but yeah, as for myself, my, my snowmobiling started, uh, you know, as an infant, literally sitting on my mom's lap, snowmobiling, you know, around the yards and the neighborhoods in central Minnesota, you know, that evolved into, uh, by the time I was in the teenage years, I went out to the, the, the shed in the backyard and asked dad if I could start getting the old snowmobiles running that they used to ride when I was a little, little kid. And, uh, you know, just kind of tinkering with that, with the neighbor rebuilding engines. There were some old early seventies cats I started riding on. And then at 19 years old, I had a, a job that I felt like I finally was making enough money. I pulled the trigger on my very first personal snowmobile while I was still in Minnesota. And that was a 1995 uh, Polaris Indy 500, you know, all 88 horsepower of it, all 120 inches of track or under 21 inches of track, probably a half an inch lug on it. You know, compare that to the machines we ride today out in the mountains. It's a night and day difference. But uh, yeah, my, my time in my evolution of, uh, you know, first starting to ride mountains was in 2007. I had some friends in Minnesota who had started a while back making some annual trips once, you know, once a week, a year. And I got invited on that trip. And wow, all I can say is you look back at those moments in time when you first get involved in this, this mountain riding experience, or, you know, I think even in the backcountry skiing experience, the first time you're taken out and you look back at that years later, you're like, wow, I'm lucky I survived those years. <laughs> you know, my first ever mountain riding experience was from Minnesota. You know, it's like an 18, 20 hour drive to get to Cook City, Montana. And anybody in the motorized uh, snowmobile world and maybe even, you know, the other non-motorized folks that know the reputation of Cook City, Montana as being a, uh, a very high, you know, level of avalanches that can happen. Very risky terrain, very big terrain. But that's where my friends brought me the first time I went out and I was on a short track machine with a inch and a half lug and, you know, we did everything we could to just get around in the deep snow. And, uh, you know, the idea of avalanches started to come into play when someone handed me a, an avalanche transceiver and said, wear this, 
well, what am I going to do with it? Like, I don't know. Just wear it. Like, you know, you got to have this. We're going out into avalanche terrain, you know? And then I had a shovel with that. People told me it was for, uh, digging my snowmobile out. Nobody even mentioned the fact that I would have to use it to dig my buddy out if there was an avalanche type of thing. Right. That wasn't even part of the discussion. And again, I'm talking like year one, right. Type of a, a scenario. And so that, uh, first year, you know, cook city, Montana, um, had a blast. I kind of was immediately hooked in mountain riding, you know, keep in mind, I'm still traveling from Minnesota to do this once a year, maybe twice a year at the most. And then in 2008, we made a trip to West Yellowstone, Montana with a buddy. Um, the buddy tells me, yeah, West Yellowstone's not nearly as dangerous as Cook City. We don't even need avalanche gear, right? We don't need transceivers, so don't worry about it, right? And so we went and rode a week in West Yellowstone, Montana. The uh, you know, There's a lot of areas out there, and in hindsight, there's a lot of avalanche terrain out there too that we were actually riding that year when we were there. But again, I go into this concept of, uh, you know, there's phases of avalanche education that I've experienced that as I've talked to other people, um, similar concepts. And I call it, you know, stage one is ignorance is bliss. We don't know what we're doing, what we're up against. And so we're just out having fun. You know, we're riding all around the backcountry and, you know, ignorance is bliss. And then you get into, you know, my first ever um, avalanche class in 2009 was with a avalanche awareness class at my local dealership in Minnesota. And that class was about two or three weeks before my next trip. It would have been my third year of, of riding. And the riding group that I was with, we went through that class and we learned enough to know that like, oh my goodness, what were we doing? <laughs> you know, like we were making a lot of mistakes. There were multiple people on the hill at a time, you know, having the right equipment, beacons, shovels, and probes, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, you get into that phase then of like a little bit of paranoia, right? Like to me, that's the second phase of this avalanche journey that most people have is they go from ignorance is bliss to, you know, paranoia. Now you know enough to be afraid. And all of a sudden, because you don't yet, in hindsight, you don't know enough yet, you're just afraid of everything. You're afraid of the little stuff, the big stuff. You're afraid of the stuff you should be afraid of. You're afraid of the stuff you don't need to be afraid of. You just are afraid. And it becomes this paranoia stage of uh, avalanche education. And on that trip, I'll touch on a little bit now and then we can go into more detail later. But uh, on that trip, that third year, I witnessed our riding group making good decisions, at least better decisions, I'll say. And as they were doing that, one of the riders remote triggered from the bottom of the hill, a massive slide over in an area called uh, top of the world, just outside of cook city on the Wyoming side. Um, and, uh, I, you know, everybody was scared to death, right? When we saw that big avalanche come down and, you know, my buddy was at the bottom of the hill, but he was just out of view. And so I started beelining over towards him thinking he was going to get buried. And as I'm beelining it towards him, he starts driving back towards me and we both kind of meet in the middle and kind of high five and say, Oh my goodness, thank goodness you're okay. Um, but that was kind of that moment in time for me that really kind of man avalanche education just saved my buddy's life. And frankly, had we been riding like we were the year before, it probably saved several lives because there likely would have been more than one person on the hill at a time in a previous year in that riding group. So, you know, again, that's, that's kind of that journey of getting into mountain riding and all that. Um, and then eventually I moved out here to Washington, you know, each year I rode more and more, got more and more progressed, took a little bit more avalanche training along the way, moved out to Washington state, joined clubs, got involved in, you know, state associations for the Stumble Association as a, as a safety chair, eventually got brought on to the Northwest Avalanche Center as a board of director. And I think, you know, the more interest I showed in these things, people around me started recognizing that and pulling me in as kind of this, you know, I've kind of become this advocate for safety and education in the snowmobile industry. So, yeah. So, so you're doing a lot of that through, uh, 
live large, right? And so talk about what the live large universe kind of brand and podcast is. Sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. So the sh- the show I do, you know, I, just like your podcast here, you know, the kind of the the format, the interview cycle, and the structure of it is podcast like, right? But the reality is, it's a live stream Facebook live show that I started in 2018. And when I first started, I couldn't decide what I wanted to call it. And so I literally just called it John Farian Live, just used my name and threw the word live at it because it was a live stream. And what I told everybody I was trying to accomplish at that time was, you know, I'm on the board of directors for the Northwest Avalanche Center. So safety is really important to me. Now backcountry and avalanche safety is becoming more and more important to me. I've been recruited and pulled into this Washington State Snowmobile Association is the state safety chair. So there's a safety committee and I was the head of that committee. And, um, you know, I, I really was passionate about these topics and having a lot of fun with it, but I felt like my reach and my ability to connect with people was really challenged. You know, you think of anybody in any career they've ever had, the moment that your boss says like, Hey, we've got a safety meeting today. Everybody show up at noon. Guess what? At about 1230, people start rolling in and they're like, is it still going on or did I miss it? Oh, darn. You know, nobody looks forward to a conversation around safety because it's usually a very dry, static conversation. It's not fun and entertaining. There's a lot of times there's a lot of scare tactics, you know, and all those type of things. And so my goal to begin with when I started this podcast, you know, this live stream was to make safety and education in the snowmobile world specifically fun and entertaining, right? Like how am I going to get an audience to sit and listen to a message about avalanche safety or about just riding safety or loading your snowmobile on a trailer safety or, you know, backcountry survival, you know, just, do you have the right stuff in your backpack to spend the night if you had to, those kind of things. And, uh, that was kind of where it all started. And then it just literally every guest I had, it's evolved and I've been doing this now, you know, 2018. So it's over five years now. I think it's five and a half years or more, um, that I've been doing it now. Yeah. And you have a pretty amazing reach, right? Like you're reaching a ton of people. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because when Facebook first did Facebook live, it was kind of a thing they were really amplifying. It's kind of like what's happening with reels nowadays, right? Like if everybody sees reels everywhere on their social media program, um, Facebook live was in its infancy. When I first decided to kick this off, I was actually following a friend of mine, now a friend of mine, but somebody who I just had seen on Facebook doing this with a different show, a guy named Scott Sparrow out of, uh, the Truckee, California, he's down in Nevada. And, um, you know, he inspired me because I actually was invited to be a guest on his show, just kind of because we got connected over the internet. And, uh, after doing that show one time, I'm like, man, this really was fun. And it was super impactful. Like all the views we'd get out of these different things. And early on, you know, over the first call it five years, even through COVID, I was doing a show literally every single week and the reach on average was five to 6,000 views every single week we would get a show, right? And I started adding that up over time. And I think, you know, if I had to add it up over all the years of doing this now, it's got to be over 2 million collective views that we've had now on all of these topics of snowmobile safety and education. And I just, you know, those numbers kind of are just staggering to me and blow my mind of like what kind of, to your point, reach that we have. And that's turned into things like, you know, I'll go to an event like Heydays or any of the other snowshows or show up somewhere, you know, across the country, almost anywhere. And, and almost a hundred percent of the time, someone will walk up to me and introduce themselves say, Hey, I watch your show. It's been great. I really enjoy your show. You know? And I just, it's humbling every time that that happens to, to just know that you're reaching so many people and it's fun to know the people who are like hitting the like button or adding comments and you kind of get the names and they're familiar to you. But what's more impressive is all the people who never do that 
but then still are very kind of in private, really watching and admiring the show and then come up to you at a moment at heydays and say, I've been watching you for, you know, four years or two years or whatever it's been since they found me. And uh, many of them, you know, this idea of it making a difference to them personally, because in this idea of snowmobile safety and education, I'm also trying the best I can just through my own personal kind of motivations and values of this, this human experience, right? Like I really, if anybody's taking the time to watch the shows, I think they'll know exactly what I mean when I say, you know, we're really doing a show about humanity, you know, the, the general structure is safety and education, but we get into a lot of just things like, I mean, we've had conversations about depression and alcoholism and anxiety and, you know, what it means to be a, a man type of thing, you know, so there's been these topics that we've woven into these conversations, medical issues, health issues that are related to things like Crohn's disease even, and it's crazy the topics that we can weave in and out of these stories of snowmobile safety and education and literally change people's lives. And, and that's what motivates me every day is like, I know that whether it be a story I share about an avalanche or a story I share, you know, and again, it's not me telling the stories, it's me just helping the guests tell their stories, but being that conduit in the world is really, really my motivation of, frankly, I think we all are put on this earth and we wish like, how can we make a difference in this world? And for me, I've, I've been blessed enough to find out what that you know, what that tool is, is for me is this podcast and the network that I've created through it. So yeah, incredible. Well, yeah, it seems like you are a true connector of, of other people and ideas and, and sharing those in that format is, is super beneficial to the community. So, um, appreciate the work that you're doing and, and continue to do so. Um, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about just some statistics within, you know, in the last 12 years or so, Average annual snowmobile avalanche fatalities in the U.S. have been cut by in half almost, right? And that's in the face of increased use, right? Um, and unfortunately, some of these fatalities that continue to happen uh, happen because people don't have the right gear, right? It seems yeah. super basic to anybody that's listening to an avalanche podcast to to think Amen. that you need to have the right gear to go out and recreate an avalanche train. But like what in, in your mind, like what, when, what more needs to be done to, to get the word out? Yeah. And I think, you know, to look forward and think about what needs to be done, I think taking a moment to look backwards and what's been the, you know, the evolution over the last five, 10 years, I think is the kind of the time frame that you're referring to here is, you know, from 10 years ago, five years ago to now, what has made the difference already in, in reduction of avalanche? Because the reality is there's more people in the backcountry. People have better access to the avalanche train in backcountry because of the technology that exists today. And so the reality is use goes up. People are more and more dangerous terrain. Like in theory, the deaths should go up too if nothing had changed, mm -hmm. right? And so I can speak for myself and I'll share, you know, I believe my perspective is shared with many people in this world. I think of people like, you know, Matt Enns, Brian Lundstedt, you know, Dan Adams, all these people out there that are, have been in this industry. And again, and, and I want to say something out loud and Caleb, you and I chat about this kind of in our pre-conversations is I am not an avalanche professional. I want that to come across loud and clear is that I am simply a passionate recreationalist who has found a niche, a niche, however you want to say it in the industry that has found a way to make a difference and to feel good about what I'm doing, but I am not an instructor. I've gone through my, my recreational level two area class. I've been through a level one. I've been through companion rescue numerous, you know, recreation, you know, just avalanche awareness classes. And I got to a point where my next step was like, okay, I could go into pro level. And I was being encouraged by a lot of people to do that based on how involved I've been. 
And I made a very conscious decision in my recreational too. I was like halfway through the class and it was just this moment in time where I was really having this internal battle of like, do I want to move forward to this or do I not to that next level? And at the moment that I decided that I'm not going to move forward professionally, I had this like inner peace that came over me knowing that I'd made the right decision. And it really comes down to not a desire to help people. It's the opposite of that. I find that my ability to help people and to shift and to help shift, it's not me, it's it's just part of it, is to help shift the culture. And this is kind of the core of where I'm trying to get to is that, you know, these folks like Matt and Dan and Brian, you know, the culture shift from where we were of like motorized users, you know, not even thinking about safety and education in the backcountry to now, think about it, it's almost become cool to be avi savvy right to be avalanche aware and you think of these pro riders that are out there you know like the chris brants of the world the mad ends of the world you know like there's so many people in this industry who are our top elite riders and almost 100 percent of them now have some content related to avalanche safety and education because there's been a shift in the culture of what it means to be a true passionate backcountry rider it means that you're there for your buddies as well, you know, male, female, you know, whoever it is, it's your, it's your riding group, your partners, your riding partners that are out there. And when my wife and I are out there riding, like I have the confidence in knowing that she has been trained to the same level that I have and vice versa. And with our snowmobile club or any riding group that I go out to, I'm very good about just setting clear expectations of what the day is going to look like. And I know some of your other questions, we might get deeper into that. But this, it's, it really comes down to a culture shift is what it has been. And it's been a collective culture shift. But, you know, one of the biggest compliments that I've ever been paid in this timeline of me doing what I'm doing in the Avalanche world is things like, you know, the scholarship program with ARI, you know, the Avalanche Alliance and the impact that we've been able to make. Like, I've not done any of that, but I've been part of all of it and I've had influence on all of it. Um, and I think it was Brian Lundstedt that looked at me one time and says like, John, we've been trying to get this kind of a thing going for years as motorized avalanche educators, educators in the industry. And you just kind of come along and come up with some ideas and get a whole bunch of people together. And before we know it, we have a, an avalanche, you know, and again, the avalanche alliance is a mine. It's climbs idea. We'll get more into that as well too. But like all of a sudden, John, you've connected all the right people. And now things like a scholarship program for motorized users is happening. Right. And, and it's like, we've been trying this for years and somehow, some way you have found the right time and the right place to be in, in a place where you can connect the right people to help make some of this happen. And that's the part of what I do that I'm really proud of is that ability to just connect the right resources with everybody and to help tell that narrative from kind of a non-threatening third party perspective. I'm not putting money in my pocket by being an avalanche educator. And so me having an opinion on avalanche education isn't, you know, threatening to anybody in theory, right? It's like, I can give my opinion as a recreationalist. And in theory, it doesn't matter who it is in the industry. You know, if they value my opinion, they'll hear it, but they're not feeling threatened by it because of competitive reasons or anything else. Like they think I'm just trying to put people in my avalanche classes versus their avalanche classes. I literally am here for everybody. Yeah. Well, it's pretty cool to see the market drive the increase of, of motorized avalanche education. And, and one thing that I think is super cool is like a, a lot of these places that you can go get some avalanche education, you're riding with perhaps your, your riding, your snowmobile heroes, right? Like these people, these pro yeah. riders that, um, you know, can increase your skill development, not just for, yeah. uh, riding skills, but for, for avalanche, um, avalanche education as well. 
Can I, can I throw in a little comment there too? Because what you said really just triggered a thought in my head that like, it's probably been in the back of the rattling around, but just what you said kind of helped me kind of articulate this is I honestly think that is the next evolution, at least for the motorized community of avalanche education, mm -hmm. right? I think getting people excited about avalanche education is going to be around this full backcountry experience, right? I think the idea of just going to a safety class to tr learn things so that you can be safer, like that's great. But so many of these mountain riders are coming from areas outside of the mountains, like the Midwest or the East Coast, and they're traveling for a week at a time. And that's all the vacation they get for the entire season. And they want to go maximize that trip. And if you told them they had to take three days to go do a level one training class or a level two training class, that they look at that as like, that's taking away from their experience. But what you just kind of teed up there and what I'm going with is this idea of like, you know, whether it be a Chris Brandt or whether it be a Matt Enns or, you know, whoever it is out there training and teaching, you know, even Caleb Kosturki has a level of avalanche training as part of his curriculum, right? He's not, I don't believe doing full on level one classes yet. If he is, he's probably partnering with somebody, but the reality is, is that experience, right? To be able to go out and to learn and elevate your backcountry experience, period. And when the cool kids on the block are saying avalanche education is part of that, people are going to be way more willing to sign up for it and, and look for it and, and to aspire to be part of that community that knows that being and riding safe with your avalanche partners, you know, your riding partners is going to be a big part of what it means to be a backcountry rider now. It's not just about doing a re-entry or a, you know, a, a whip or whatever it is that you're trying to do, a jump in your sled this week or, you know, those kind of things. It's going to be this all-encompassing, you know, how am I going to be a good partner for my riding group? So. Yep. A bit more of an integrated approach there. Um, yep. John, talk about some techniques and tools that you use with your riding partners to just establish good communication and, and facilitate, you know, yeah. group consensus decision-making when you're out there riding. Cause I know from my limited experience riding sleds, it's something that I'm, I'm getting into. I'm, I'm get going into my third season with a snowmobile and, and, um, yeah. I love going out there, but man, it's hard to keep track of my partner sometimes. And it's hard to know where everybody's at and, and kind of, it, it feels like hurting cats to me at, at some time. So, um, yeah. give us some tips and techniques of, of things that you've found to be helpful. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll right up front acknowledge that my personal backcountry riding experience is probably somewhat different than most people's. Um, and I'll get into the why behind that in a minute. But that doesn't mean that others shouldn't aspire to like adopt some of these same skills, right? Or these same techniques. And what I would tell you is that a very large portion of my riding happens with my snowmobile club. So our club is known in this part of the country as the club who puts on a weekly ride. So almost every single Saturday from December 1st all the way through, you know, late April, if not into early May, um, we're doing a, an official club ride. And by doing those official club rides, if I'm not actually leading it, I'm actually somewhat influencing and being part of it. Like I'm either attending it or whatever. But as a club, we have really set the expectation that avalanche safety and education and backcountry safety and just riding etiquette, all those type of things are core values that our club has, right? And so I would say most riders out there aren't riding in that club experience, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't adopt these same concepts, right? But in this club, ex but in this club experience, it really is, and, and this is something that I've kind of, you know, uh, uh, I say this kind of a little bit like reluctantly just because like, you know, it's, it's a reputation I have that I believe most people appreciate, but some people may frankly not. Right. And the reality is, is 
I have no problem setting really clear expectations for our writing group, right? And those writing group expectations are things like today on the calendar, it says we're going to do a beginner ride or an intermediate ride or a writing skills ride or a avalanche safety focused ride or whatever it is. And so we're proactively categorizing our rides up front to make sure that people understand before they even show up and say they're just reading the post on the Facebook page, they know what to expect in general of the type of train we're going to be in, like just by naming and labeling the type of ride we're going to be in, right? And that doesn't always happen when you're just with your buddies, right? Because when you're with a core group of buddies, you all are riding probably similar skill levels. Maybe you got new people coming in and out. So that dynamic is going to change a little bit, but you can still kind of apply kind of a concept of, hey, everybody, today's a ride that we're going to go out and we're going to do it, you know, and label it beginner, immediate, intermediate, advanced, or whatever you want to call it. And that'll help idea identify who should or shouldn't be on your ride. Because, you know, if we have an intermediate or a more advanced ride and all of a sudden a brand new club member comes in that tells me that, you know, hey, this is their first year riding and they don't have any experience at all. I'm like, hey, just to be fair for the rest of the group, you probably shouldn't attend this ride. And it's a lot easier to have that conversation in the moment if there's a question because you've already established that expectation up front. And so crystal clear upfront expectations. Other things that we just kind of talk about all the time in our rides is that, you know, hey, in our group. Avalanche safety gear is non-negotiable, you know, transceiver, shovel, probe, and we've gotten to the point where even a radio is required, right? Um, we still consider, and I think, you know, most avalanche professionals in the industry would probably be aligned to this. And again, reminding you, I'm not an avalanche professional, but my opinion is that an avalanche airbag is not required. It's a nice to have. It's, it's a great extra precaution to take. But I've seen it, you know, and it's pretty well known. I think people have said this across the industry, but some people use it as an excuse not to go get avalanche training. Like, oh, I've got an avalanche bag. I, I'm good, right? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I would much rather ride with somebody who has their airy level one or level two and doesn't have an avalanche bag and to go out and make good decisions and to know how to do a rescue if something came down to it. Because the reality is we're going to do our best to avoid avalanches. We're not even going to get into that situation because we're making good decisions because of our training you know, just because you have an avalanche airbag or not. So to me, an avalanche airbag is kind of like, you know, it's a nice to have, it's not a need to have. Right. And so there's no requirement there. Um, but the other big one is an expectation of, uh, alcohol and drugs. You know, many, many of the States we ride in marijuana is legal, you know, so people may show up, you know, smoking in the parking lot or whatever it is. And I think a lot of people as an industry just take it for granted that that's just kind of the way it is. And nobody's ever, everybody's afraid to say something. And my attitude about backcountry riding is that, you know what, I know for me, like there was a period of time early in my riding where I would have a beer once in a while, time of the month, but I could tell right away the second I had a beer, I don't care if it was a light beer, a medium beer, a heavy beer, like my judgment and my ability to react quickly became impaired. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it was a teeny bit, I could tell the difference between how quickly I could avoid hitting that tree or not hitting that tree when I'm, you know, going through side hill and through the trees, or if I miss that stump or I hit a road approach or whatever it is, it's like my ability to react was, and I just, am like, you know what? Backcountry riding is already challenging enough, dangerous enough. Let's just set the expectation. No alcohol, no beer, no drugs, whatever, you know, anything that would impair you is, is, is no go up in the mountains. Um, you know, on the way home for dinner, if you want to have a beer at dinner, good for you. No problem. You know, go, go do what you want to do. Right. Uh, but up in the mountains, it's, it's not tolerated. And so we just set these expectations up front. And then when we get to the snow park, 
we have a, a ready to ride time and everybody meets at the parking lot at a certain time. And then we tell them like, okay, get there by eight 30, be ready to ride by nine. And what everybody knows that that ride start time means that that's when our, you know, pre-ride meeting or safety meeting, if you want to call it that, you know, and if it, if it goes super fast and smooth, it's like a 15 minute meeting, maybe 10 minute meeting, right? Because we got a lot of new people. If it was my same core riding group every week, it would probably be abbreviated. Right. But every single week, I personally am riding with new people, you know, Half of them may be people I ride with on a regular basis. A few others might be people I ride with several times a year. And there's other people that it's the first time I've ever ridden with them. And so for the sake of consistency, we always do the same thing. And we're always going over things like the avalanche forecast. We talked about the weather. And in our area, one of the things that we find is that, you know, one of our most common riding areas is right at a crosshairs for the avalanche forecast zones. And so in, in, in Washington state here, we've got east and west, you know, north, central, south, all these different zones that we have. And literally there's like four zones that I could ride in in one day out of this one parking lot. And I've got to decide with the group, like, hey, who read the forecast? You know, did we read the Snoqualmie Pass forecast? Did we write, read the, you know, forecast south of us, north of us, east of us? Because we could end up in any one of those areas throughout the day. And where are we going to go today? And so having that conversation of like, you know, did somebody read something different than I did or vice versa? Um, and then making a plan for the day of, you know, based on the riding group and the skill level that we have today, what are we going to do and what are we not going to do? And I think that's a concept that I really love that I keep hearing more and more of in um, conversations around Avalanche safety and just terrain management is based on the forecast, based on the danger rating, based on the, you know, the problems that we're seeing in the avalanches. Is there an area today that we're going to be in that we're just going to avoid completely? Like once we're in this area, you know, are we going to go there or not? And so that's a big deal. And then, you know, for us, even traveling to and from our riding zones, you know, we're always riding trails and stuff and the riding zone to and from, from point A to point B, we have pretty clear expectations about like, Hey, everybody just, this is kind of a travel mode. This isn't playtime. Like, let's just get from point A to B, especially when you're in a big group. You know, a lot of times we have riding groups of, you know, a small group might be six people. We have some groups that are 10, 12, 15 people. Usually if we get to like almost 20 people, we'll break it up into two groups and do two different ride leaders, that kind of thing. Um, but by doing that expectation in that kind of a riding group of going from point A to point B and not being a play mode, it saves a lot of the issue of like the entire group getting slowed down by somebody who gets off the trail for a minute and gets stuck. There's nothing worse than having a dozen people on the, in a riding group together and one person going off the trail getting stuck while we're all trying to get to the riding area where we're trying to all go ride and have fun. And so, again, I acknowledge the fact that the dynamics of riding with a club environment like I have are in very many cases different than a normal riding group. But again, I think there's pieces you can pull out of that that uh, will help be helpful for everybody regardless. You know, it seems like a lot of that is super transferable to a to a group of riders that's really bought into that process, right? And then you've spoken to culture a little yeah. bit. And so like, I think this goes for motorized or non-motorized. Like if you're finding yourself in part of a group of people and you don't appreciate the culture that's there and you're not being listened to and people aren't bought in, then maybe it's time to find yeah. some different riding partners. Right. But, um, there's, there's tons of groups of people out there that do yeah. buy into this process. I had one question, you yeah. know, like when you're planning your day, um, based on the avalanche forecast, are you all, you know, kind of looking at specific terrain features and saying, um, you know, we're not going to go play on this specific terrain feature given the, the conditions or the avalanche problem for today. Um, or you just kind of close off whole zones, 
you know, what's your approach there? It's a com- it's it's really situational and it's a combination of things. Um, you know, one thing before I answer that question, I want to go back to for just a second is the idea of everybody having a voice kind of in you kind of following up after my comment, you said something that made me think of this is something that's really important to us is that we want to make sure everybody in the group understands that we want them to speak up and to have a voice for the day. Like if we get to an area that they're not comfortable with, if they're uncertain of, if they have questions, um, really, you know, focusing this idea of like, you know, cause, cause based on what I described and if I'm on the outside listening to this, and I'm an avalanche professional, maybe like yourself, I'm worried like, man, is John going to run into this idea of people just following him and doing what he says because he's so dialed in on his process and his plan and he's he's so rigid on what he does that he's not going to be flexible. Um, and I would tell you that that's not the case. And we would be very much in, embrace a culture of everybody having a voice and speaking up. And we actually call that out at the mm-hmm. beginning of the day, you know, please speak up. And when somebody does, we actually celebrate that and we thank them for what they do for that type of thing too. Yeah. Great. Yep. But as far as like riding areas and riding zones or features, yeah, I mean, it really depends on the avalanche forecast. And, um, you know, I, I'll give you an example of something I run into. And you remember we earlier you talked about the uh, idea of, you know, beginners is, you know, ignorance is bliss and then paranoia and then go into like, I can go out and have fun again because now I understand how to navigate the train and all, and all those type of things. And I hear this all the time and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's probably a, I don't know. It, it, it's good and bad, right? Like there's two sides of the story, but on a regular basis, I interact with people who will say something like this. Today's a high avalanche danger day. The map is red. I'm just staying home. That That's a, actually a fairly common comment that I'll hear from people that usually fall into the category of paranoia, right? Because they've gotten just enough avalanche education. They follow the forecast. They know what they're looking for. And they don't know yet how to navigate terrain in a way that mitigates the risk of a high avalanche danger day, right? But those who are trained and educated and understand how to navigate terrain can look at a high avalanche danger day and go like, it's game on. Like today is the day we're going to go shred those meadows. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's probably three, four feet of fresh pow in areas that we can get to that don't have avalanche terrain. And there might be a couple of small zones on the trail that we're going to be conscious of. We're going to stop. We're going to talk about, we're going to spread out as we go through this particular part of the trail as a precaution, but we can mitigate that risk pretty well. And then when we get up to the main riding areas where we're going today, we're not in avalanche terrain, right? And so a red day is actually going to be a pretty epic snow day in most cases. And let's go up and have some fun. So for me, I've gotten to the point where an avalanche forecast doesn't tell me whether I'm riding or not. It's telling me where I'm going to ride, mm-hmm. right? And there's some exceptions to that because here in Washington state, I've got to travel from non-snow zones down by Seattle up into the mountains. And frankly, if it's a red day, mostly you're okay, but you might even find there's some pass closures because of weather and spin outs, or maybe there's an avalanche that they're doing control work on the highway. But if it gets to the point where it's extreme danger, there's a 90% chance that the interstate is just closed for most of the day or a couple of days because the avalanche danger is such a high risk that the interstate highways that I would travel to get to my riding zones are closed. And so that would dictate whether I'm riding that day or not just based on the fact that I can't even get to the riding areas there. And there's some days where I've seen it. It's so sketchy that you're just like, this doesn't feel good. Let's get the heck out of here and go home. You know, I I mean, I've been there. It's, it's happened. Um, But based on our areas that we're in, like, yeah, there's areas where like the trail to access a whole entire riding area might go through a really high risk avalanche danger area. And so because of that ability to have to travel through that, that trail, you know, that bottleneck in the trail, 
we may just say, yep, this whole section of our writing area is off limits today. Not because once we get there, we're off limits. It's just that to get there in general, it's, there's too much risk. Too much today overhead based on hazard. Conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And I've had that happen where like, you know, I'm driving around, it's a high avalanche danger day. And then, you know, we're like, okay, well, let's go ride this other area. And as we're heading down the trail, I'm just being observant and watching. And I'm just seeing like natural slides everywhere. And it's all pretty small, low risk stuff, but we're getting more and more into some aggressive terrain. And I literally at some point have had to stop the entire group on the trail and says, okay, guys, this is not convenient, but let's 180 air sleds right here and turn around and get the heck out of here. This does not feel right. You know? And ironically, it was like the next day in that exact same general riding area, there was an avalanche death in that area. And so I go back and think about that moment in time. And I think like, you know, we made the right call. Like we shouldn't have been where we were that day. We probably went farther than we should have, but we made the decision to turn around and get the heck out of there as quick as we realized we were in over our heads. So Mm -hmm. the mountains were talking to you. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, I mean, there's days where like, you know, a lot of it is elevation based, right? Like you can go tree line, you know, at tree line, above tree line is kind of the different tiers of the forecast. And for us in Washington here, most of our riding is either, you know, below tree line, or maybe at tree line at the most, right? Because it's rare that I get to go out and ride in the areas that we ride most of the midwinter where we're above tree line. You know, usually that's my spring riding when I go up to Mount Baker or somewhere like that. Um, and so for us, we'll look at, you know, based on the forecast and what's going on or the aspect of where the problem is. Um, and we'll just, you know, certain aspects, we might go to a certain riding area that we normally go to, but just say that hill today is off limits. Nobody touch that hill. Everybody stay on this side, you know, there's a lot of times where there's a valley, right? And you've got the wind loading on one side of the valley where all the cornices and all the deep fluffy snow is that, you know, high risk of avalanche danger. And the other side, you can just see as wind scoured and it's, you know, not as fun a riding, but it's a whole lot safer. And based on the avalanche forecast today, you're going to see that, uh, you know, you're in better shape. Um, so we'll go in there and, and pick and choose terrain features based on that. But that all comes with time in the saddle of getting through avalanche training, right? Like you don't just go out there and look around and figure it out on your own. It's something you have to go through that formal training for, before you get comfortable making those kind of decisions. And the cool part about a riding group, like a club, like we have, is that we have a number of people who've done their level ones, level twos to where we always have somebody in our group that can help make those educated decisions and guide people rather than just going out ignorantly. So, so John, let's talk a little bit about uh, support for avalanche education from the snowmobile industry. So the international snowmobile manufacturers association, um, what do they have any hand in, in helping to push avalanche education amongst the motorized community? Yeah, there's, there's some that are, um, I, I mean, honestly, all of them have it. So the main three, I mean, Yamaha is, as you know, is likely, uh, you know, they're kind of winding their way out of the snowmobile industry at this point. So we'll focus on the main three, which is Articat, Polaris, uh, Skidoo. And uh, Skidoo for years has done, you know, avalanche awareness classes around the country um, here and in Canada, both um, highly successful. It's kind of in many cases, it's that dealership experience that people get for their first ever avalanche awareness class. Because the reality is, is the motorized community, and this is something I would actually, you know, anybody who's listening that's not in the motorized world, which I'm assuming is the majority of the listeners here, um, this is one challenge I would give you is figure out a way to communicate with the motorized community. And it's really easy to say like, well, our forecast is out there. Everybody can see it. It's on our website. Everybody can see it. But the reality is, is like there's only one place in the world that a a snowmobiler is going to go 100% of the time. And that's to their snowmobile dealer, right? And so for Skidoo to partner with these snowmobile dealers around the country to do that, that's the network that really, really leans in. I mean, there's still a large percentage of, you know, riders out there 
I hate to say it, but are still very ignorant to this even idea of, of, and it's hard to believe, like, I mean, people like you and I who are involved in this industry and see it firsthand, like you have a hard time understanding, but honestly, there's no, throughout a winter season, no, no less than a f- several per month that I would run into out in the backcountry that have zero context of the idea of backcountry riding. And, you know, they might be just renting from a resort down the road and this might be their first ever snowmobile experience. And they're just out in this ignorance is bliss world, right? Where they're staying on the trail. They don't realize they're riding through avalanche terrain and the rental place, you know, they generally feel like, okay, it's safe today. We're going to let our customers go out. But the reality is there's still a lot of people out there that have no idea of any part of it. But, you know, whether it be through a rental shop or a snowmobile dealership, like those are the places. And, and Facebook and social media in general is a big place that motorized snowmobilers, I'm sure everybody hangs out. And so I would love to see, and I've even challenged our own Avalanche Center on this sometimes, is like I'd love to see the Avalanche Center, instead of posting exclusively on their own internal social media channels that people may or may not be following, like find out where is your community at? Are they on the local snowmobile club pages? Are they on some of these bigger national pages? I'll give an example. Here in Washington State, we have about 20,000 registered snowmobilers, right? Here in the Washington state. And we have a Facebook group called PNW Snowmobilers that has a following of over 10,000 people. You know, they're not all from in-state, but there's a pretty large chunk of the people who are there from Washington state that would be an audience that, you know, heck, the Avalanche Center could, on occasion, post one of their forecast things. Like a lot of us as riders, we share it into there already proactively, but to have it coming directly from, you know, one of these like avalanche centers or from the, you know, the, the community, I think that's where some of that connectivity is, you know, of, you know, the community, I think of, you know, like just last night, literally locally, one of the breweries had a, um, you know, pow day, like, you know, stoke, the stoke is up pow day. And they were doing this all. And it's all about skiing and everything too. And it's like, you know, they're doing a fundraiser for the Avalanche Center. And it's like, those kind of things are happening around the community, but in most cases, they're non-motorized events, Mm -hmm. you know, unless someone like me specifically does an event here in Washington state around, um, you know, something called sled bash, where we pull together a bunch of people, we do a big fundraiser. It's a big focus thing. Um, you know, but as a, as an Avalanche Center, as an organization, are they, that would be the challenge I'd have for everybody is are they out there actively seeking out those motorized users who may not have had the exposure yet that they need to, uh, you know, the resources. Yeah. That's a great call to action, John. And you know, that kind of brings up another point of sometimes contention for some people is like, who is funding, who's throwing money at the avalanche centers. Right. And, and there are some organizations who's values might not line up with certain users, right? And have you seen that play out and and you have any advice for the community on that? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and as we just were transitioning to this question, I realized I didn't address like what Skidoo and Polaris or Arctic Ant and Polaris are doing too. So do you mind if I jump back into that for a second? Yeah, perfect. Okay, so continuing on and the idea of, uh, you know, what are the the industry happening is, you know, Articat has done a lot of things like with their ambassador program, they have taken all of their high level elite ambassadors in the snowmobile world and put them through avalanche training, right? So in the Articat world, Rob Kincaid passed away several years ago. I actually on my podcast that I do, I interviewed Dave McClure about that day on the mountain and he told the story of what happened that day. Super impactful, but Articat, especially since Rob Kincaid's passing has really stepped up their game on being involved. 
they're directly partnered with like Erie, for example, and they're they're partnering together on different classes. Um, for example, Articat donated a snowmobile, a kid's snowmobile to Avalanche Alliance this year for that. So they're investing that way. Um, Polaris, um, you know, similar. Like there's so many things that all these OEMs do kind of behind the scenes in small, maybe not super public ways that are supporting it. You know, like, you know, through Avalanche Alliance, we've gotten, you know, significant discounts on sleds to be able to do the raffle. Um, Climb is obviously owned by Polaris. A lot of people know that. And Climb specifically is the one who, when we get into Avalanche Alliance, you'll hear was the originator of this concept of Avalanche Alliance. And so Polaris as a parent company and through its different, you know, business groups um, are really making a big difference in Avalanche safety and education around the country as well. And a lot of it is, you know, everybody's doing it in a very, you know, slightly different way. And I would say it's probably one of the few topics across the industry that all three OEMs can come together and say, yep, we're all aligned to this thought process of backcountry safety, whether it be avalanche education or other types of safety. And um, I think, you know, some good things have started in the name of partnership, like with ISMA and those different folks. Um, But I think there's still so much more to do. And I think it's like, you know, anything else in the world is the less we're divided and the more we're aligned, the more we can do together and we can amplify each other's message. Uh, And so I I look forward to seeing this continue to grow as an industry, but uh, definitely go in the right direction. Yeah. Great. Awesome. But yeah, you had asked a question here about, um, you know, different uh, groups. Like I'll give you an example here of, you know, maybe it's Aerie, maybe it's the Northwest Avalanche Center, maybe it's your Avalanche Center, Caleb, you know, you've run into this before where, um, you know, the motorized and the non-motorized group. And I th- I've heard this actually, I've been listening to some of your other episodes and I've heard previous guests mention this as well as there's some, there, te- there tends to be this idea of like us versus them, mm-hmm. right? It's motorized versus non-motorized. And I think there's folks like you and me who like, man, the mountains are big. We all have room for each other. Let's support each other. We're all out there for the same reason to go out and just experience life to the fullest. Right. And when you get into this idea of, you know, there's some businesses out there that have a reputation very specifically for being anti-motorized, meaning they're proactively out there engaging in work that is trying to remove motorized recreation. And it doesn't always mean just snowmobiling. Sometimes it's off-roading as well or dirt biking or you know whatever, different types of uh, motorized sports. There's a, an idea that some non-motorized groups have where it becomes, you know, I, I, I'm very thoughtful when I say this word, but it becomes almost this elitist mindset of like, we're earning our turn. And I've, you know, I've had these conversations, like we're earning our turns. You guys don't even deserve to be there. It's kind of the mindset that some of these folks have. And with that comes this challenge of like, nope, we want you guys out of here. But on the other side of that, like as a motorized user, I've got to be a good steward of the land that I'm in also, right? I've got to make sure that at the snow parks, I'm not leaving garbage behind. I'm not being obnoxious. I'm not making a ton of noise. I'm not, you know, buzzing by skiers on the trail on the way out to my riding areas. Like we have a responsibility also as a motorized community to represent the community in a way that's thoughtful to the entire community, not just selfishly for a motorized user area, right? Um, but when you get into this idea of like, you know, let's say, and, and we'll just call it company A, B, and C, right? Like I won't get into names of companies just for the sake of, you know, arguing of it, but, uh, you know, let's say company A is partnering with an organization like your Avalanche Center and they're doing a movie premiere and they're going to do a fundraiser and donate money to the, and again, I'll say, I'll probably keep messing it up. Is it the Wallawa Avalanche yeah, Center? Yeah, right? All right, perfect. So the Wallawa Avalanche Center has got a fundraiser and they're going to be donating, they're going to getting money benefit from company A, right? And company A, maybe in the motorized community is known as a company that doesn't always support motorized recreation. There's some folks out there who are saying like, whoa, 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 like, you know, 
Wallowa Avalanche Center. Who do you think you are taking money from company A who's over here on the side trying to undermine our ability to recreate, right? That's not okay. They're doing things that are hurtful to some of your members. And, and I'm, I'm in this weird space where like I'm part of a nonprofit Avalanche Center. I'm part of things like Erie, the Northwest Avalanche Center, Avalanche Alliance. And I'm also then part of snowmobile organizations, including clubs. So I get to see both sides of the story and to hear what's going on. And it's really interesting. And I think the position that I've kind of landed on, which is, you know, in my opinion, the, the, the way that most, you know, nonprofits should be thinking about this is the idea that, you know what, as long as your mission statement for the Wallawa Avalanche Center, the Northwest Avalanche Center area, whoever you are, you know, if your mission statement is to serve your entire community and you can receive money and use it to support your entire community in a way that continues to be true to your mission statement of what you're trying to do, then it shouldn't really matter where the money's coming from to some degree, right? Um, there's some, you know, there's some really fringe extreme cases that people need to be extra thoughtful of. But in general, this is kind of the thought process that I think is aligned with what makes the most sense. But the reality is also is that, you know, let's say it's a non-motorized company that's trying to eliminate motorized but at the same time like what is the motorized community doing like if all of a sudden and this happens you know maybe skidoo or somebody else um, donates money to a, an organization like avalanche alliance or the avalanche centers directly and now somebody in the non-motorized sides you know throws a fit and says you know hey wallowa avalanche center you can't take money from skidoo and wait a minute it's like at the end of the day your avalanche center is supporting motorized non-motorized and you have a mission statement and as long as you can receive money in a way that's supporting that entire community and you're showcasing that and being really clear about it, I don't see an issue with this, right? And, and for those folks who say like you shouldn't be accepting money from somebody, I look at it as a motorized user and say like, hey, that company A who's really working against me just funded my recreation. And your avalanche you know, forecast that you're using. And my avalanche forecast, and right? And now maybe there's even a motorized avalanche education course in my area because the Avalanche Center now has more funding overall that they got, that they're not being dictated where they can and can't spend the mm -hmm. money, but they're getting the money in. And then as long as they can execute against their mission statement of supporting the entire community, then game on. Like, guess what? Company A might think they're working against me, but now they're funding organizations that are supporting me, like your Avalanche Center. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about like, um, you know, especially a lot of smaller nonprofit avalanche centers, uh, such as the one that I work for, uh, it benefits hugely from the support of the Avalanche Alliance. So tell us a little bit more about the Avalanche Alliance, who started it and why, and, and what are some of the initiatives and scholarships and then the fundraising efforts that's going on right now? Yeah, it's a really, really cool, um, experience to be part of, um, you know, the Avalanche Alliance was the brainchild of some of the members of the marketing team at Climb. So Climb, as most of you guys know, is a clothing company here in our industry, in the motorized industry. They do obviously snowmobiling, but they also do dirt biking, adventure bikes, side-by-sides, you know, all kinds of different, uh, you know, gear and clothing options for backcountry users, you know, trail users. They knew that they wanted to do something for backcountry safety Avalanche line because, you know, five years ago or so, you know, some of our professional athletes around the country were starting to get impacted by avalanches. You know, I think, uh, I, I listened to Matt Enz's, you know, story on your guys's podcast and, uh, he shared about how he started his entire business based on an impacted avalanche. He's a climb athlete, right? So those are examples of things that have triggered multiple things in the industry. And I think all of us, you know, not, not me specifically, cause I'm not professional in the industry, but I think of like climb wants to do something like 
you know, the backcountry users are important to us. They're our customers. We support them. We love them. We want them to come home safely, right? And so what can we do about it? And there's a need now. We're in a position to do something about it. And so they started and spun up this kind of little side thing. And again, I'm not them. I don't work for Climb. And so I can't promise I'm going to articulate this 100% accurately. But this is my understanding of how it worked is the first year they put together kind of a a small raffle. They were giving away a snowmobile and they raised some money. And I want to say, you know, significant amount of money, not what we make anymore nowadays, probably maybe half or less than half of what we make on a regular basis now. Um, And it was successful. Like right off the bat, they were kind of blown away with what they were doing. And then they learned along the way that it's like, wow, where are we going to send this money? You know, because there was this plan of like raising the money, but now there's this idea of, okay, we have the money. What are we going to do with it? And I think there were some ideas of, you know, beacon check stations and local projects around their community that they spent that first batch of money on, um, which was awesome. But it was really about going into the second season over that summer that it was kind of a kind of like, you know, divine intervention moment, I will call it, right? Where um, I'm on a family vacation traveling through kind of the, the Rocky Mountains with my son. We're just road tripping along and I find myself in Southeast Idaho, right? And <laughs> I'm down the road from Climb Headquarters at uh, one of the other companies down in Idaho Falls. And they're like, hey, Climb's just up the road. You should go check it out too. And again, I'm just John Ferrian driving around with my family and I'm like, well, that'd be kind of fun. Let's go see what the Climb Headquarters looks like, right? Keep in mind, this is right in the middle of COVID, probably right in 2020 or something like that, the summer of 2020. The COVID protocols caused, you know, some of my my heartache in this moment where, you know, you could come in, but like nothing was really open. Like there was nobody in the office type of thing. And uh, I went in and, you know, somebody told me, you go like, yeah, this guy named John Summers, like it works up there. And I looked at my Facebook friend list. I'm like, oh yeah, John Summers is one of my many, many Facebook friends. Let me just reach out to him. I honestly had no idea what John's role was at Climb. Turns out, if you don't know this, is he's the head of their marketing program, right? So he's the guy that kind of came up with this brainchild of Avalanche Alliance, but I'm completely oblivious at this point. Him and I get introduced, you know, we talk over the phone a little bit. It didn't work out for me to meet him in the moment, but that whole interaction created an opportunity for him to start saying like, hey, John, I've actually watched your show and I've been pretty impressed with what you're doing. And I heard you started the scholarship program with Aerie and I we have this thing over here at Climb called Avalanche Alliance and we'd love to talk to you about how we could maybe partner and grow together, right? And that was kind of the beginning of that part of the conversation. And so I was, you know, outside of Climb, one of the first people that was brought in to at least start the conversations And then through my network and what I've been already doing, I brought in folks like Marlon, you know, recreational products, the sled decks, and then Fly Racing, you know, one of my clothing sponsors, um, you know, and bringing new partners in to help come together. And then I had already established this scholarship program um, with Aerie for Motorized Avalanche Scholarships because of my own podcast that I was doing. I was selling t-shirts and stuff and I'm like, I'm not really in this whole thing to make money. And so what can I do with it that'll do good for the community? And I had this idea of like doing some Avalanche Scholarships. And when I did that, you know, somebody said, you should get a hold of Aerie. I think they're looking to start some kind of a program like this. And again, it's this whole network thing, right? Everybody introduces somebody to somebody else. And before you know it, now I'm networked in with Aerie, got this established, you know, scholarship that in my mind, I'm going to give away a couple of avalanche classes a year and I was going to be excited about it. And then all of a sudden this conversation with Climb opens up. And before we know it, now we have Aerie at the table. We have me at the table and Fly and Marlon and other partners and all the partners that Climb has with Zebros and SLP and Seat Concepts and you know Ice Age, all these different partners and more and more and more. It keeps growing. And by that kind of that second year, we did this collective program together. And by partnering with Aerie as a nonprofit, it unlocked our ability to do it kind of 
quote unquote, the right way, right? Like to do it in a nonprofit form where there's, you know, rules and of engagement of how we can do a sweepstakes and all that. Um, they leaned into a partner that they found out, which was TapCat, who does our website for the sweepstakes. And so we have vetted out everything to make sure that we're doing the sweepstakes legally. And, you know, everybody's going to stay out of like, you know, legal jail with things like raffles and sweepstakes over state lines. Because, you know, anybody who's ever tried to do a raffle online over state lines has run into some issue if they've done their research is, uh, you know, there's rules and laws between states that don't allow that unless you do it a very specific way. And so we've established now this group that we've been doing now for four additional years. So Climb did it one year and we've done three years as kind of this bigger group. And then we're in our fourth season now. And that's coming up here. And we can talk more about the details of this year's sweepstakes but uh, that's kind of the evolution of how it all came to be. And then we can talk more about where the funding goes, too. I'm happy to go into that detail, too. So, John, the Avalanche Alliance has made quite a big splash. You know, like this is these aren't just like bake sale amounts of money, right? Like, <laughs> talk about like how much was raised last year with the sweepstakes. Yeah. If, I mean, one of the questions you fed me ahead of time was like, you know, how much have we raised holistically? And like, I don't know that I could give you an exact dollar amount, but it's, you know, on average each year for the last three years behind us, um, it's been in that neighborhood of, you know, 150 on the low end to 180 on the high end is kind of that window of uh, how much money has been raised each year. Um, and that's a gross total amount, right? Obviously before expenses of things like the prizes that we have and other expenses for services like the website that we have. And then there's administrative fees that we um, refund um, Erie for as well too. That's part of the the cost basis of the money we raise. Um, but net net, I mean, yeah, it's been a significant amount of money that's been coming up. And so, you know, I want to say the number that I saw just the other day that Aerie shared with me that we funded just in the Avalanche scholarship. So not even counting yet the Avalanche centers, but just the Avalanche scholarship program for the last three years, for example, has been just shy of $150,000 alone. Like, you know, the money that's gone out and that money is going to um, both recreationalists as well as professionals. And the cool part is like, I'm the one who kind of established this concept of what I wanted the scholarship to be about. I wanted it to be, you know, to me, it's an underserved market, which is the motorized community. We really need to over deliver against that because that's where there was a big deficit in people who were getting educated and providers and educators. Right. And so the, this, the criteria that I established with Aerie was like, I want this money to be in my mind, like seed money. I'm not interested in just paying for some individual's avalanche class. That's great, but they can pay for it themselves. What I want to invest money into are people who can make an impact in our industry. And so the pro level people, it's a no brainer, right? Like if they're going into pro level avalanche education, they're going into it to benefit the community because they're going to become an instructor. They're going to support their community. They're training other, other riders. Um, and so that one is a hundred percent. If somebody applies and gets accepted into a pro level avalanche course, we're funding them at, you know, anywhere from 50%, depending on needs, it could be more than that. But, you know, we want to, and this is important too, is like, you know, people who are doing this, they're not just getting a free ride. It's, it's offsetting some of their education is what it is, right? The idea is that anybody who's doing this and they're serious about it needs to have some skin in the game also, right? And so we're, we're helping out a lot, but you know, as you can probably uh, attest is nobody is getting rich in the avalanche education world, right? Like nobody is making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year as an avalanche educator. If they are, they're the exception, not the rule type of thing, right? And so, you know, to be able to support people who are willing to go in and serve the public in that way, man, that's right aligned with my values of what we're trying to accomplish here. 
And then you go to the recreational side of this. Um, again, we've served, you know, a number of people in the recreational side too. And it's, if, if I'd say it's, it's probably close to 50, 50, it may be a little over indexes, a little higher on the professional side, um, especially the dollar amount, you know, it's probably closer to 50, 50, but the, um, the recreational side, same thing. We're funding people who, when they apply can showcase first that they're a motorized user, but then we also ask them questions like, you know, what are you going to do with this education? How can you impact your community? How are you already involved in the community of snowmobiling, right? Are you involved in clubs, state associations, other organizations? Help us understand how this education is going to not only make a difference to you, but those you either ride with or part of your community, right? And so that's the criteria there too. And I would say for the folks who actually come in and go through the effort of applying for those scholarships, you know, it's probably at least or more a 90% approval rate, right? At some level, they'll get funding anywhere from 50% to 100%, again, depending on their needs and what the situation is. Um, and then the whole other set of um, funding that we've been doing, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I think it was, we decided that, okay, we did, you know, scholarships one year, the next year we're going to do avalanche centers. And then we've kind of settled into this, this process of like splitting it up where we fund some money to scholarships, some money to avalanche centers, and that's kind of our new model now. We'll take out what we feel we need for the scholarships, which is the lower percentage of it. I think it's about 30000 a year, give or take, that we're putting into scholarships each year now. And the rest of the money is going to go to Avalanche Centers themselves. And so these are currently, right now, it's for U.S. Avalanche Centers. Um, every single one of them has the ability to apply for grants against the money that we have available. And based on how much money we have available each year, we kind of like, you know, give ranges of like, okay, within this range, what would you do with this money and how would you use it to benefit the motorized community? Again, all of this money that we're raising through the motorized community, we're really trying to target it back to directly impacting the motorized community and it's being used in in many different ways but some of the big ways that we're seeing it being used and we've had some recent posts on this with the avalanche alliance social media pages is um weather stations so there's at least a handful of different avalanche centers who have gone out and put weather stations in areas that are heavy motorized users you know user areas that maybe didn't have great weather data in those areas other um, avalanche centers like the Washington Northwest Avalanche Center here, one of the ways that they spent the money was um, by hiring an additional forecaster for an area like near Yakima, uh, was it when, yeah, Yakima area, that, that zone over there by Yakima. It's a heavy motorized area use. And frankly, it was probably one of the least used areas of our state. And so it had the least resources and we didn't yet have a forecaster for that area. And so by using some of this money with the grant, along with some of the money that came in to support it just from the nonprofit, we were able to actually add a headcount to our forecasting team here in Washington state to now focus on an area that is being underserved, but now heavily used by motorized users. So there's no major ski resorts in that area over there, right? And, you know, at least in the compared to other parts of the state. So, yeah. That's pretty. That's quite the wide reach that that the Avalanche Alliance is having with with those fundraised monies. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sweepstakes because everybody likes to hear about shiny new toys, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this episode's likely going to air in early December, which uh, okay. by the time people hear about it, they'll have ten days or so to to buy some tickets to the sweepstakes. But give us the skinny on the sweepstakes. Yeah, absolutely. And so the sweepstakes here, I'm actually, as we're talking, I'm going to pull the website up just to make sure I don't miss anything good here because uh, there's some amazing prizes in here. And so the first item that's our grand prize is a 2023 Polaris Patriot Boost RMK Chaos Slash. 
don't know if you've noticed this, but Polaris has gone over the top on all the names they give to their machines because the more names you add to it, the faster and better the machine is. I don't Clearly. know if you knew that. That's a yes. fa- that's a fact. So um, <laughs> we've got a fully customized, and that thing is just decked out with all kinds of goodies from so many of our awesome partners like Ice Age and Zebros. Um, SLP is part of it. Seat Concepts is part of it. There's others, I'm sure, that I haven't even gotten into. But uh, go on the you know the website here. We'll put in the link. I'll provide this to Caleb as the link to the sweepstakes. So when you hear this, you'll be able to just go in there and click on it. You'll be able to see uh, how to get there. But if you actually go to um, the um, avalanche alliance alliance.org is the kind of the main website for Avalanche Alliance, and there you'll see right on the cover page there's an option for win the sled. And when you click onto that, our grand prize is that someone, and that someone bill alone is like a $30,000 prize, the way it's built up. It's just amazing. And then the next prize that we have, uh, we calling it our first place prize behind the grand prize, um, is a Marlon sled deck. So a brand new 2024 Marlon sled deck. It's a $6,200 value, um, all aluminum construction, you know, top of the line sled deck in the industry. It's a, it's a product that I've been using personally for like five years now or more. And, uh, it's been amazing product. And so a great item there that you can get in to win on. And then, Articat stepped up this year and donated a kid sled, an Articat ZR200, so a little 200cc slowmobile, um, designed for youth, kind of in that age of like 7 to 13, you know, probably in that age range is kind of what this is good for. And uh, people can win that too as our second place prize. And then our third place prize is our climb head-to-toe winter package, right? And so that's a, a monosuit, a helmet, a pair of goggles, a set of boots, and an avalanche pack, right? So almost everything you need to be a, a, a well-equipped backcountry rider is what that, that prize pack is. And, you know, ballpark, that's going to be like a $3,000 prize probably by itself. And then uh, the final prize we have here is going to be uh, Ordovox Avalanche Rescue Kit, right? And so they have their new voice-controlled or voice-activated, you know, transceiver that they have, um, their shovel, their tran- their probe, and then they have an Avalanche uh airbag pack as well too and again probably a couple more thousand dollars worth of gear that you have right there um, ready to go and so all in i mean that's got to be pushing 40 almost fifty thousand dollars worth of prizes that we do um little fun fact is last year we attempted to give away not attempted we did give away (laughs) attempted we didn't attempt nothing we did give away um but it was a ford f-350 pickup and so on a kind of instincts, we decided as a team, we wanted to try and see if we could make a bigger impact with a truck versus a snowmobile as the grand prize, um, which dramatically increased our expenses. Uh, you know, that was the downside to it in gross revenue. We didn't really raise a whole lot more money than we would have with the snowmobile. So had a successful uh, sweepstakes last year, but due to expenses, uh, it was a little more challenging to get as much net money there to be able to distribute out to all the avalanche centers and the scholarships too. And so, um, but this year we're excited. We're on track. I think we're currently, as of this recording, we're at almost $44,000 raised so far since uh, back around heyday's time, you know, first week of September. And the sweepstakes goes through December 10th. So coming up, it's kind of close of midnight. December 10th um, is the close of the sweepstakes. That's your last chance to buy tickets. And then approximately a week later on December 18th, we're going to be doing, as we always do, a live broadcast uh, with a kind of a random generator on the back end of the website that we use with TapCat. Um, it'll generate the numbers that are live on the air for us to be able to uh, give away. And we do that on the 
Facebook page of Snow West Magazine. So Snow West Magazine in the motorized world is our number one kind of mountain riding publication that's out there in the, the magazine world. And they have a Facebook page and uh, they uh, have been nice enough to allow us uh, admin rights on that page to be able to go in and do a live broadcast and give away those prizes. We've done that now, I think, three years in a row on their uh, their Facebook page on that evening of December 18th. And all, that inf- and all that information is on the website. So when you click the link that Caleb can provide you here, um, there's a website link there. You can go into it and all those details are in there. All right. Well, call to action for everybody listening to this. You, you only have eight more days to go buy some tickets for the Avalanche Alliance sweepstakes. And, and what a what a lineup of prizes there. I mean, that's, that's pretty alluring. I've, I know I've been buying yeah. tickets the last couple of years and, and uh, to nice. support a great, Thank you for the support. great cause, but also... You know, these are, these are great prizes too. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the sweepstakes, I mean, again, it's, it's the way that the motorized community can really help, you know, get a chance to win some amazing prizes, but just know that the money is absolutely going out and making a difference. I mean, I'm personally aware of multiple different groups. I mean, there's, um, you know, DJ Osborne, I know in, uh, you know, in Utah, he has gone through and benefited from these scholarships, created his own business. We now have him out there as an avalanche educator. Um, there's uh, Aaron Case and those guys out in, I think they're in Idaho, Wyoming area. Um, you know, the same thing. They've opened a business up here in Washington. So the money that's going into these organizations and like the scholarships or the avalanche centers, it's really making an impact in our communities. And we keep getting so much amazing feedback from that. And uh, we really appreciate you, Caleb, uh, being able to help us get the word out about, you know, the work that's being done and, and where that money is ending up. Because uh, on that Avalanche Alliance website, too, if you take the time to click through it, there's articles in there that highlight where the money has gone and, you know, how it's been spent and some of the different projects that it's funded. So Awesome. Well, John, what have I, what have I not asked you in this interview that you hoped I would? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the one thing that we chatted about before that we haven't really gotten to is the idea of like, where did live large come from? And what is it about? What does it mean type of thing? Right. And uh, it was kind of funny because, you know, live large for me started out as just kind of this fun way of telling people happy birthday, you know, live, live an awesome life, like have a great life type of thing, you know, so live life to the fullest is kind of this concept of what to me live large meant when I first started using it many years ago. And, you know, I'm not one to just say happy birthday, I've got to be different or unique, you know, that's my MO. And so live large, right? That's what I'd wish everybody. And so as I started my podcast of John Ferrian Live, the hashtag live large kind of kept getting added to it all the time, right? It was kind of, you know, and then we were at the point where we were going to start doing shirts and merchandising and stuff. And at the time my show was called John Ferry and live. And then I was going to put live large underneath it as kind of like a sub hashtag type of thing. And my wife is the one who came up with the brilliant idea of like reversing it. Right. And she says, how about if you did live large as kind of the primary logo and then just did John Ferry and live below that, what would that look like? And so we did that. And so we were mocking up my first logo, um, for my podcast and uh, shirt, t-shirt logos and that kind of stuff to raise money for these scholarships early in the day. And it just kind of, that's where it took off and took traction. So I give full credit to my wife for kind of challenging that thought process of how we should position live large. And then over time, it's really, really um, evolved, right? And it's kind of become a core part of who I am. And there's kind of three core pillars behind this. And it's really live life to the fullest, make the most of every day and make a difference to others, right? And so I think those three things by themselves they mean a lot to everybody too, but I'll tell you even deeper what they mean to me. Like, you know, live life to the fullest is my, myself, whether it be personally and professionally, like I try to like live an adventure, right? Like my wife and I were out every weekend 
jeeping, snowmobiling, maybe motorcycling, hanging out with friends, you know, seeing family, um, just trying to live a fulfilling life, right? And make sure that we're living an adventure to, to get the most out of it. And then make the most out of every day, Caleb. Man, I tell you what, there's days that are good. And I'm sure if you're like me, there's days that are bad. And if you can figure out a way to kind of, you know, salvage every day, make the most of every day and get the most out of it, you know, that's another just core fundamental foundational thing that I kind of live by is like, you know what, even the bad days are worth living and we got to be counting our blessings for those as well. And, you know, let's see what we can do to kind of make tomorrow a little bit better. And then the final piece should be pretty obvious by now after you've heard the story is, you know, make a difference to others, right? And, you know, no different than what you're doing, Caleb, is uh, you're putting time and energy into something like this Avalanche Hour podcast to make a difference and impact people in this sport in a non-tangible way, right? Like, I mean, you're getting some small benefits for it, but I can guarantee you no different than my podcast that I do the time and energy and effort you put into it, nobody could pay you hour for hour the amount of time and energy you put into it to get you to come out and do this for what you do just out of personal value, right? Like you want to go and you want to make a difference in other people's lives. You know, through every story that you're sharing like this one, or hopefully somebody else's story that you're making a difference in our community, right? And that's this idea of like, man, it doesn't matter if it's personal or professional, how can we make a difference to others in our lives, right? And, and just living those, you know, core values and there you go. That's what Live Large is all about. And so when you see me throwing out there, hashtag Live Large, or if you see hashtag Live Large Universe as the podcast name, or Live Large University is the name of the scholarship at Aerie, just know that there's a deep meaning behind this hashtag Live Large. It's not just a superficial, like, you know, hey, live the best life you can type of thing, right? There's a, there's a deep meaning behind it when, when we put that out there. Yep. That's awesome, John. I appreciate you sharing that with us and uh, appreciate the work that you're doing out there with Live Large. Um, and, and yeah, it's nice to hear the core values there. There's some, there's some depth behind that for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate you doing this. Um, John, maybe the, I think the deadline has come and gone for most of the scholarships this year. Um, but just to keep that on people's radars, when does that come about in the, the fall of next year? Yeah. So every year, typically kind of midsummer, the websites at Erie are updated with all the kind of updated information that needs to be refreshed for the year. It's usually mid to late August. Um, and then so by the time you get into that August, September, and then I think this year we closed out the scholarships. The first pass, I think it was October 1st, and I think it got extended by 10 days or so. Um, so it's kind of mid-October was the cutoff this year. And, um, you know, the reality is that's the time of year when everybody's kind of getting signed up for avalanche classes. And we kind of have a established idea of like how much funding we have available and uh, we, you know, just getting everything going for the season again. And so, yeah, for this year, the money that we're raising right now in this sweepstakes that you guys are raising, that'll all go to support, you know, both the avalanche centers for next season, as well as for the scholarships as well. And so all the money we raised last year uh, has gone to, you know, has now been distributed. So we've been distributing the money for the avalanche centers, um, the, the scholarships that people have applied for, They've been approved for them and communicated for them. And then the way that works is they have to go then and execute their class. They have to come back with a certificate of completion if it's a recreationalist or they have to go through and, you know, be in the uh, pro level classes and be there and actually go through them. And once they do, then they're going to be reimbursed for their expenses based on the scholarship approval level. So Gotcha. Awesome. Well, thanks for laying it out for us, John. And uh, I look forward to getting out and riding with you soon. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Come on up. All right. Sounds good, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, man. Live large. God bless you. That's how I wrap up every one of my shows. I'll leave it with you too. All right. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening today, everyone. Head on over to avalanche-alliance.org to 
find out more about Avalanche Alliance and to purchase tickets to win a brand new Polaris sled, amongst other prizes. Don't forget to use the code, the promo code LIVELARGE in the checkout and you will receive 30% more entries to the sweepstakes. Music on today's episode was written and performed by Gravy. Thanks, Gravy. You can find out more about Gravy on Instagram at gravy.tunes, and you can find more of his tracks on Bandcamp. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. You can find more of his artwork on his website, www.miket.com. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Much appreciated. Send any feedback you have to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com, or you can find a form on our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Make sure to tune in next Friday, December 8th. That'll be the release of our next episode, and we're going to feature an update from A3's Executive Director, Janie Thompson-Nolan, and follow that up with a great interview with one of NWAC's forecasters, Katie Warren. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and always have fun out there.